Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you again on this Friday. What are we, guys? We are the 5th of August. Wow. Summer is ticking. I say that every week, but it just freaks me out, guys, how fast this is going. I mean, you're talking Labor Day in four weeks. You got to stop doing this to me, man. (laughs) I hate it so much. (laughs) So Stuart, you were, you were getting back on the road after an injury. You said you were going to do 15 K last weekend. Uh, come on, give us, give us some times. You know, what, <laughs> what, what were the five K split times, uh, yeah. one K's for, you know, what's funny is I'm so slow right now because I haven't been running that I can't wear my Garmin watch. I I'm so slow that I can't even look at the times. So I've just been out in the woods running around like with nothing on it's, uh, it's great. You uh, understandably, listeners, he had his shorts and his <laughs> shirt on because we're not into shirtless running here, let alone yeah, they, shortless running. They that, call that, the non GPS uh, running naked running, which does cause some confusion in the running world. <laughs> and Sean, you had promised to match Stuart beer for a kilometer uh, <laughs> last weekend. I don't know. Or, are you uh, making any progress on that? No, uh, I, I, I over delivered. I assure you. Uh, <laughs> now, now, how about you though? Are you finally, are you finally childless over there? And if so, I what, am. The, I got what's going on in the Griffiths household. I got two kids at camp. Um, it's date night every night. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's weird though. I do miss my kids. You know, it's funny. You kind of think, wow, I'm sure this is the first time I've got both of them out of the house for you know ten days, but. Um, I guess that's the weird thing about parenthood. You just, you love them and you don't kind of get off the hook. Um, even when they're not here, they're kind of on, on your mind. So looking forward to getting them back next week and kind of rounding out the summer. But we've got an action-packed show. The summer is not letting up for the Hub Roundtable in terms of topics uh, for us to cover. So a double-barreled show this week. I want to first dig into uh, uh, the center ice uh, conservatives event that's coming up. The Hub's going to be there to cover it. Some great reporting today by Jeff Russ in your Hub email or on our website. Um, and also just talk about how this, you know, kind of what's making the party anxious at this moment. Is it the center ice kind of centrist in the party? Or is it frankly some increasingly batty stuff that we're seeing out. I don't even know if it's right to call it the social conservative wing. Maybe it's a new wing, a new horn, um, <laughs> Andalusian tail that the party is growing. But we can talk about that in the back half of the show, guys. We got to talk about China. So much going on there, and I know uh, Sean has some very, very strong views on China that I want to <laughs> probe uh, with him. So, Stuart, 
kick us off with a quick summary of Jeff Russ's uh, piece today on the Center Ice Conservatives. Maybe this is new to some people. What is this group? What are they trying to do? I thought Jeff had some terrific uh, reporting. Yeah, one of the great things about having a reporter on the staff now is that we were actually asking this question uh, on our roundtable is, you know, these the Sunrise Conservatives have said they want to bring some kind of moderate conservative voice to the party. And our question was, well, what is that? What is a moderate conservative now? Like the, if they're reacting to Polyev, you know, he's pro-choice and he's pretty conventional on most of his stuff. Um, so what are, what are they going to do to differentiate themselves? And I the piece is really interesting because it is actually still hard to figure that out. Um, they they have um, some charade team representation on there, but it's not an entirely charade movement. Um, we uh, Jeff talked to Brian Brulot, who's a, a Polyev supporter, and he actually made the case that, you know, a sort of measured populism can go along with centrism. Um, so I, I think it's quite interesting. Uh, I, I think what maybe they're trying to do here is bring down, you know, the heat level a little bit and maybe have some more kind of temperamentally conservative ideas, which is more about just you know, persuading people rather than yelling at them. And I think we've kind of made fun of that idea in the past. Well, I mean, I've made fun of that in the past on this podcast, but I think there's something to that. I think maybe um, temperament is important when it comes to politics. And uh, my sense from all of the quotes in the piece is that they are just looking to take down the temperature a little bit. So Sean, is that a viable path, you know, for to keep this party united? We talked last week about Stephen Harper's endorsement of Pierre Polyev in that context, you know, to try to come out at the other end of this meat grinder of a leadership with the United Party. But I guess I just challenge whether, you know, there are some issues that are points of real cleavage, you know, for instance, vaccine mandates. Um, you know, for some people that is, you know, a Rubicon. So I'm happy to enthusiastically paddle across it and, you know, arrive at the other shore and shout back at the people that are, are you know, not going to go uh, you know, into Rome, so to speak, and oppose vaccine mandates. And let's remember that Pierre Polyev was even, in a sense, more emphatic. He he said, now, I don't know if this is actually ever translated into a workable policy, but no vaccine mandates in the future, regardless of, in a sense, circumstances. Like this, this is a policy approach is off the table in his government. So I challenge you, Sean, whether... There are real cleavages here or whether Humpty Dumpty can be put back together again with some soothing words and some, I guess, consensus around the broad planks of a conservative agenda. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been a bit of a skeptic about uh, the claims of, of fracturing and even um, di disunion of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I would, I would put three uh, reasons on the table. Uh, the, the first is that uh, Polyev uh, is a unique potential leader in the sense that his credentials as a conservative are so rock solid amongst core conservative voters. There is so much built up trust and credibility there, not just because of what he's done in the campaign, but because of his track record um, that I think he might counterintuitively have more scope for uh, a kind of pivot on some of these different issues than, say, Aaron O'Toole did, where I think co uh, core conservative voters had uh, a more skepticism or suspicion about uh, about O'Toole as a, as a kind of true blue conservative, as he famously put it in the last leadership campaign. So in that sense, uh, Polyev's 
rock solid conservatism may actually be a, a source of of flexibility. It's the kind of quintessential Nixon goes to China um, um, opportunity. The second point I would make is uh, is that, and this, this is a terribly important one, is that well these different factions of the conservative movement may have disagreements on the margin. The one thing that they fundamentally agree on is that they don't like Justin Trudeau. Um, and I wouldn't underestimate the, the kind of unifying and animating value of a, of a shared opponent. And what makes the Trudeau government uh, particularly unifying from a conservative point of view is really across the policy spectrum, whether it's on uh, the government's uh, skepticism of free markets, uh, which, of course, is alienating kind of economic conservatism or it's, uh, its aversion to kind of traditional values or traditional norms, which is alienating social conservatives, to say nothing of some of these pandemic issues, uh, opposition to, to uh, the Trudeau government and to the prime minister himself in particular, it seems to me, uh, will transcend any of these uh, fissures or, or disagreements within conservatism. And then just let me make one final point, guys, because uh, I think this is sometimes underappreciated the Conservative Party of Canada has now been uh, uh, part of our political landscape for, you know, more than 15 years. If you uh, came of age uh, at politically in those early days, the truth is you don't really even have any attachment to the old legacy parties. There are only two Conservative MPs presently sitting in the House of Commons who, who ran under a progressive Conservative or reform Canadian Alliance Party banner. So I, I do think the Conservative Party uh, has sort of established itself as a as a, a, a durable political institution. Um, and you know, I think that the challenge for Polyev, assuming he wins, will be uh, to galvanize those core voters and then start to build uh, with a, a broader share of, of the Canadian and Canadian public. Hey, great, uh, great analysis. Um, so Stuart, Taking kind of Sean's three points there, I guess, what is the center ice group trying to accomplish? You know, have you and Jeff figured that out? Like, is it, is it to try to give the Shrey campaign a boost? I don't know. Is it to put a marker down with uh, the Polyev, um, you know, machinery that's now developed and will soon take over the party lock stock and barrel i guess i'm just trying to understand what the what the strategy is here other than having a nice conference and people listening to speeches and going to dinners and you know doing all that good stuff yeah i think maybe um one of the more interesting parts of this is that you know we sean and i have spoken before about how in the uk they have sort of actual factions within the caucus. So there'll be people, you know, uh, asserting their positions on, you know, various issues and actually getting together to lobby for that within the Conservative Party caucus. Um, that doesn't really happen in Canada. It's kind of one of those things that, you know, either it happens informally or everyone just kind of sticks together. Um, and one of the reasoning uh, offered by one of these advisory council people was that that's what they're doing. They're advocating for a certain kind of policy within the party it doesn't mean they want to split up the party. It doesn't mean they want to bring down the party or, you know, upset Polyev. Um, they just want to argue for their policies that they like. And I think that's probably right. Like in the end, uh, this could either fizzle out or they could just be sort of an adv advocacy voice for certain ideas. Um, that to me, those are the two most likely possibilities here. And, you know, they're, 
I, I think maybe what this is, the best way to look at that is it's a hedge against Polyev's sort of more extreme impulses towards, say, the truckers or towards the kind of rhetoric that I know they don't like. Um, so I think maybe they're just trying to find some kind of counterbalance to that stuff. Can I put a, a big idea on the table? And I'd be interested in, in Stuart and, and, and your, your reaction, Rudyard. There's been a lot of attention uh, on um, the center rights conservatives movement and, and some of these moderate conservative voices in the mainstream media, including, of course, Tasha Carradine, who in parentheses, we'll have on the podcast uh, next Tuesday, so stay tuned. Um, part of me thinks that one of the reasons there's been such attention paid to this group is because a lot of people in the mainstream media broadly share their political preferences, and so this group has received disproportionate attention. But let me put this to you. I think the most interesting development in this leadership race is the role in place of social conservatives in the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. In the uh, first leadership race after Stephen Harper stepped down, social conservatives were a crucial part of Andrew Scheer ultimately uh, winning the leadership. In the last leadership race, listeners will know um, that were it not for Quebec, Leslie Lewis would have been the leader of the Conservative Party because of the um, support and uh, energy of social conservative voters. And what strikes me, guys, is in this leadership race, social conservatives have played a smaller role, um, uh, even though they have in, ostensibly in Lewis uh, a standard bearer. And my theory, hypothesis, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, is that for some reason, uh, social conservatism, which has historically been associated with a key set of kind of flashpoint issues, including, of course, uh, the question of abortion rights, seems to have shifted its focus to uh, issues around uh, the vaccines, uh, uh, mandates, uh, the World Economic Forum, and, and, and so on, and kind of moved further and further away from the mainstream and away from uh, those core issues that I do think uh, uh, have a lot of energy, if not within the Canadian public writ large, at least within conservative politics itself. So uh, that's a long way of saying, in some ways, I think the media is is missing the most important development in this race, which is the appearing diminishment of social conservatives as a, as a key part of, of deciding who the next leader is going to be. Yeah. And I mean, just to play three-dimensional chess for a moment, and I, if we take your hypothesis, and I actually agree with it, that social conservatives themselves, like every other group, have been impacted by this pandemic and have picked up, uh, you know, new new torches to kind of bear um, vaccine mandates, obviously a big one. Um, it's not simply WEF, uh, World Economic Forum, it's this whole uh, conspiracy theory around the Great Reset um, that seems to have, you know, enthralled and uh, captured a lot of people's um, mental headspace, I think, in a really, really kind of conspiratorial and uh, in some ways kind of dark shades. And I talked about it last time. I'll talk about it again. There is an anti-Semitic tone to this great reset. And you can just go down that rabbit hole if you want on YouTube and find all kinds of references quickly to George Soros and the Rothschilds, the uh, Illuminati. I mean, it's this stuff is really, really nuts. And I guess I would question, Stuart, whether to pass this around the horn, so to speak, whether you know, we're wrong to assume that these people have just agglomerated around Leslie Lewin. I mean, who are the 300,000 people that Pierre Polyev has signed up? 
my sense, looking at some of them, I don't know what portion, but some of them are that, you know, are in that constituency of full-blown, you know, tin-hatted, conspiracy-wearing, um, swearing, angry voters who might in the past have been, as Sean said, um, staunch uh, abortion rights supporters, you know, maybe gun, gun control was their big issue. They've migrated out the spectrum like everyone has on the left too, to even more radical and extreme ideas, which then just brings me back to our, our, our event we're covering next week at the hub, this, this centerized conservatives. I mean, maybe the worry here, Stuart, is what the heck is under the hood in terms of the party membership going forward? And, you know, there's, there'll be policy conventions. These, these people, Yes, we'll deal with you know the reality of a Canadian party where the leader is uh, all powerful and paramount, but they're also in the party now. They're voting members. They're going to have says when it comes to putting policy ideas forward. Uh, that could cause a lot of headache, I think, for the party in the context of winning broader appeal amongst the Canadian electorate and not seeming extreme. Yeah, I think to, to for me, this is the fundamental question in our politics right right now, which is that, um, I mean, my own example, I think, is probably worth using here, which is that last year, um, Ontario closed all the schools for seemingly arbitrary reasons. Um, it was extremely frustrating for me as a parent of a young child. Um, and then, you know, you would sometimes mention that out loud and you would people would kind of get nervous around you that you know you were going to go a little farther than that and I've been looking at the polling on the trucker convoy and it's very interesting because it's really kind of uh, fluid people have a lot of sympathy for the ideas of the trucker convoy they just were not impressed with how they went about protesting and I I don't know the answer so I'll say that's right up front that I don't know what percentage of these people are someone like me, who I would consider pretty normal in their politics and their opinions, um, who are just frustrated with governments that weren't listening um, to what actual experts were saying. They were listening to like teachers unions and people like that. Um, or is it this kind of conspiratorial side of things? I know, I think there's two ways to look at this. One is that, you know, we're online a lot and this stuff is very online. So there is a chance that maybe we're seeing more of it than is actually out there in the population. Um, but the other thing is that I, I know in my gut there's something going on out there that we should be worried about, and it is infecting our politics. And the question for Polyev, I think Jason Kenney also dealt with this in Alberta um, when he was dealing with people who were arguing for sovereignty and were so angry at Ottawa, he was trying to get sort of mainstream policies that would reflect their anger and sort of channel that through the normal um, uh, channels. So I think Polyev is trying to do something like that. He's going a little farther. I don't know if he's going too far. I've heard some people in the Conservative Party who think he is. Um, but I think this is sort of a fundamental question right now. What What's actually out there in our politics? Great. We're going to cover that actually all next week, both uh, a reporter at the uh, Center Ice uh, event, but more importantly, a series, I understand, guys, on kind of what is this this identity in the party that, you know, within the conservative party that could be kind of construed as centrist, what are its key planks, how does it differ from other factions and wings. So we're going to go kind of deep into the camps of the conservative party next week in the hub with a series of 
essays and reporting. I'm really looking forward to that. So let's take a short break. When we're back on the other side, we're going to talk the Middle Kingdom, the Red Dragon. Uh, what's going on in the Straits of Taiwan? Um, we'll have that for you right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hello, Hub listeners. You are tuned into the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Guys, second half of the show, let's uh, spend a bit of time on China. It's an issue that we've um, covered at the Hub extensively since our launch in the April uh, 2021. We find there's a lot of interest, a lot of engagement uh, amongst the Hub community on China stories. Uh, China now front and center in the news with a set of major military drills around the island of Taiwan, in a sense, creating... Some say a game plan, a map, a rehearsal for how China potentially could blockade Taiwan, shutting it off from uh, shipping, from, uh, in a sense, the rest of the world to assert uh, China's sovereignty uh, short of an invasion. Sean, let me come to you first. Um, what is this moment that we're in right now? I mean, uh, it's kind of interesting. I've, I found the last few days that kind of China hawks have been a bit quiet. Maybe people are surprised at the extent of China's reaction to this. Uh, are we seeing the precursors here for uh, something bigger, uh, a, a challenge on the horizon that to, for many of us was theoretical, a, a real face-off over Taiwan to something that now looks like, if not... Uh, inevitable, uh, more and more likely with, uh, forget each passing decade, we're now talking each passing year, month, you name it. Uh, this conflict between United States and China over Taiwan seems to be, have shifted up a gear uh, in the last few days. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it's a, 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 a bit of a moment for Western policymakers, Western leaders to as you say, shift from the theoretical to the practical. What does this mean in terms of alliance building? What does this mean in terms of our uh, past commitments to uh, to Taiwan? And how would we, in effect, operationalize those commitments um, in the face of uh, some of the scenarios that you described? If listeners are looking for a kind of framework to think about these questions, I'd encourage them to listen to a past episode of Hub Dialogues with Elbridge Colby um, that I think is really solid. Uh, Elbridge is uh, a former uh, Trump administration official in the Department of Defense, someone who distinguished himself in the first decade of the 21st century um, by being something of a, a conservative skeptic 
of the Bush administration's uh, so-called freedom agenda. Uh, and, you know, in a nutshell, Colby's argument has always been that this is the main event, that um, that China represents uh, the West's main foe moving into the 21st century, and that the United States, Canada, and others really need to kind of rationalize their defense and foreign policy uh, to ensure that we have the kind of resources and capacity to, to, to deal with this scenario. And I think if channeling Colby, I think he would argue uh, that for a whole host of reasons, including uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, that we are really ill-prepared um, uh, for the, the current moment. And uh, I don't think anyone is at least less prepared than Canada, where our foreign affairs establishment still seems stuck in uh, a, a kind of early 21st century, uh, 21st century pose about how, you know, if only we get more Starbucks and McDonald's in China, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to solve for all of our fundamental differences. And, and so one hopes that this is something of a of wake up call at the Pearson building in Ottawa, because uh, this is uh, things are getting we're moving from a, a kind of cold war to an increasingly hot war. Stuart, let's talk a little bit about Canada, because there were some, I'll give credit where credit's due, some great reporting in the Globe this week that the Liberal government has impaneled a uh, group of experts. Governments do this from time to time when they're faced with challenges. In this case, uh, the foreign policy challenge of dealing with China after the two Michaels. Um, reports coming out that this expert group is uh, arguing vociferously over whether the words uh, China um, should even be mentioned in the document. So this entire Indo-Pacific strategy seems to be kind of hanging in the balance right now at Fort Pearson, not in the context of whether we should have a more aggressive or assertive policy a la Australia vis-a-vis -vis China, but even simply if we have the intestinal fortitude <laughs> to mention the Middle Kingdom in the document. I mean, it seems like we are, I don't know, I just, I read that and I thought, whoa, what kind of, am I reading The Onion or is this the Globe and Mail? Like, what was your take on that? Yeah, it made me think of uh, Voldemort from Harry Potter, the he who should not be mentioned. And I think that's always a really bad thing when you, I, I mean, we have noticed this recently too, which is that we are not being seen as a serious player when it comes to China on the world stage. And other countries are starting to notice this. And I, I think we should be realistic about this, which is that there's going to be two sides here. It's going to be a multipolar situation. Uh, one of those sides is going to be China and allies. And the other one is going to be the US and allies. We're not going to get in on the China side. So we may as well uh, be upfront about this. I think, you know, you could understand this when the two Michaels um, situation was going on. And, you know, I was always a little more understanding of this kind of stuff when we had two of our citizens in just a horrific situation. And, you know, I could imagine being in that position of making decisions and potentially making it worse for those guys and having to talk to their wives or their families about that. Um, but this kind of stuff doesn't make as much sense now, especially when all of our allies are going hard against China. You know, some of the stuff coming out of Australia and even the Biden administration, specifically the Biden administration does not seem to take Canada seriously on this. And I think that's something we need to change. Um, I, this morning, 
I, I have had a piece published at the hub, which is part of our, you know, we were wrong series, admitting to things that we were wrong about. And I was thinking back to the Iraq war, which kind of formed my worldview on geopolitics. Um, I was 20 years old when that happened. Uh, it seemed to me to be sort of an insane adventure in the Middle East. And I think I turned out to be right on that. But I think I overlearned that lesson, which is that it kind of gave me the sense that you can't do anything on the world stage, that most of these things uh, you know, are just so hard to do that you shouldn't even try. Uh, nation building is something different than this, though. This is sort of standard diplomacy and geopolitics, and it's the kind of stuff that we have to get right. I agreed, and I think it's, you know, it's important to separate out events like Iraq, uh, in terms of the challenge versus going up against what is increasingly a pure competitor in China, very different than Russia. And I guess that's my point, Sean, maybe get your thoughts on this. It just, it seems like a bizarre strategy right now for Nancy Pelosi, and now by default, the Biden administration to lead the rest of the world, including Canada in a, and its allies, seemingly into a two-front war with two of its major peer, our major peer competitors, nuclear armed, Russia and China, to fight conflicts with both of them adjacent to their borders. Taiwan is 160 kilometers off the southern coast of China. Ukraine is right on the border of Russia as we're learning. I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm struggling here to understand the logic of this. And it you know, I'm the last person to be anti-American, but I, I worry here that there is a there is just an ingrained at times hubris and overreach on the part of the Americans in terms of what they think they can and should do. They have a major fight with Russia right now, a major contest over the liberal international order. They've just, on a whim, allowed Nancy Pelosi to do 24 hours in Taiwan. And based on the scale and size and the remarks of Kirby, uh, their defense secretary, their national security advisor, I think they're genuinely surprised at the scale and the scope of the Chinese reaction and how aggressive it is. If you wanted to push the Chinese into the arms of the Russians, if you wanted to try to thwart your own strategy of preventing China from, I don't know, uh, giving drones to Russia, giving uh, other financial and economic assistance. Well, you've just blown up that strategy for Nancy Pelosi's, you know, 24-hour national lampoon vacation uh, in Taipei. Uh, I so mean, I agree. I agree. I, I disagree. mean, it just seems it just seems strategically incoherent, and then it makes me a bit worried for Canada because I agree with Stuart. At the end of the day, we're going to have to choose sides. We're going to have to choose the American side. We're not going to be part of the Chinese-Russian world. But what American world are we joining? when they seem completely unable to execute, uh, I don't know, would it just be common sense strategy of how to handle great power competitors? Yeah. So I, I agree and I, I disagree, at least for the purposes of, uh, of podcast fodder. On the point I, I agree with, um, it, it, you know, the idea that this fundamental issue, um, you know, one that really will likely define this century, which is to say the, the, the great power competition between the US and China, that at this critical juncture, we've effectively outsourced uh, our strategy to the, the American octogenarian speaker so that she can do uh, 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 you know, a foreign policy vanity tour just strikes me as, as crazy. Um, so on that point, you won't find any disagreement. And in fact, 
I, I think it does, as you say, Rudyard, reflect a kind of decadence uh, and unseriousness of the part of of um, contemporary American politics that um, that ought to uh, concern our our listeners. The part I would slightly disagree with is, um, you know, I do think that we have to abide by our commitments to to Taiwan uh, moving forward in a world in which, uh, as you say, the map is going to be increasingly divided between the uh, kind of American sphere and the Chinese sphere. And this isn't just a geopolitical uh, scenario either. This is a, a economic, a technological uh, one as well. Uh, if the Americans, if the West more generally uh, don't honor our commitments to Taiwan, the signal that that sends to countries around the world in that, in that scenario just strikes me as pushing a lot of um, countries that would otherwise uh, side with us into the into the Chinese tent. Sean, I, I agree 100%. But I just again, I wonder, is this the fight that you want to pick with China? We have to pick a fight with China. There are many ways to do that. We have to find ways to contain China. But again, there's just like an ahistoricism and a, a frankly, like a just a, a Western myopia here. Like remember, Taiwan was taken from China by force, by colonial powers, including Japan. You know, the rape of Nanking, okay? The Chinese do not like the Japanese. This was forcibly taken from them. And as the, as the Chinese ambassador to the United States, uh, I think it was Friday in the Washington Post uh, published uh, a quote that I'll read to you. I think it's, it's an interesting counterfactual. He says, now, to quote him, just think, if a U.S. state were to succeed from America and declare independence, and then some other nation provided weapons and political support to that state, would the U.S. government or the American people allow this to happen? You could ask the same question about Ukraine and Russia. There's something that America is doing here, which is just bizarre to me. It's You're right, you've got to fight China uh, intellectually, ideologically, technologically, economically. But to, to choose the military conflict where you're going to have to go all the way around to the other side of the world and fight a peer great power nuclear armed ballistic armed competitor 160 kilometers off their shore using naval power only. I'm all for doing difficult things. I'm all for people taking on ambitious challenges. Hey, you know, what's the old U.S. Marine uh, slogan? Uh, you know, uh, if uh, weakness, pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> I don't know if this is now the strategic doctrine of the United States, but this just seems like the wrong fight to have. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this, um, you know, one can disagree with commitments and statements that have been made, not just under the Biden administration, but successive administrations about the US commitments to Taiwan. But now that it's been made, uh, it doesn't mean we ought to abide by it stupidly in a, in a kind of stupid way. But to walk away from Taiwan after the Biden administration walked away from Afghanistan, um, it just seems to me a signal. Sean, we walked away from Hong Kong. We did it in a matter of weeks. Nothing happened. So why is Taiwan different? Why is it different? What's the intellectual difference, Sean, between Taiwan and Hong Kong? If anything, there's a case that Hong Kong was 
much more separate, uh, you know, from China due to British rule than Taiwan ever was. It was ruled by a dictator for 40 years, Chiang Kai-shek. I mean, come on, it's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know, Rudyard. It just seems to me, you know, as a kind of opening salvo in this new kind of bipolar world, uh, taking a knee to China um, on this kind of fundamental question, um, it just doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well for the kind of seriousness of the American political system, of the West resolve that we were all uh, we were all lionizing in the immediacy of Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine and, 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 and since has, has seemed to have taken a backseat to, you know, whatever Kim Kardashian is doing or, you know, whatever else is going on and, on Instagram. You know, I do think that there are times when um, we're, we're faced with these moments where we, you know, as Charles Krauthammer famously put it, decline is a choice. And we've had a pretty good run where our generations have not been forced to make um, these types of difficult choices. And, you know, I think what we saw over the past few days is the, you know, the kind of laying of the groundwork of some difficult choices before us. And, and I'm not sure that um, American politics is up to the, up to the challenge. So on that point, I, I, I fundamentally agree. Well, uh, Stuart, I'll give you the last uh, word in this mini debate that Sean and I have just had, but I, I, I would just lament the fact, you know, if, if Canadian men and women end up, you know, putting their lives in harm's way and possibly dying in the Straits of Taiwan for the independence of the Taiwanese, some could say that, you know, would be an ennobling, you know, struggle and death. But let's at the end of the day, remember what this is really about. I mean, we are an ally. Canada is not isolated here. We could be dragged into this conflict. And I just don't think it's the right, I don't, I don't think it's the smart fight to have with China. The smart fight is to find ways economically, politically, technologically uh, to, to push off uh, China's uh, power as, as a pure competitor. It's not to poke the hedgehog, to go in as we are now with Nancy Pelosi's visit and just openly antagonizing the government in Beijing, basically disregarding the one China policy, which has served us amazing. It's arguably part of the rules-based international order. We're violating the rules-based international order. It just seems, I don't know, Stuart, what your view is, but I think the politics of this is radioactive. I think average Canadians would, if, if there actually was a conflict to break over Taiwan, would say, what? You're sending Canadian soldiers and and sailors into the Straits of Taiwan to put their lives on the line for Taiwanese independence. I don't know how that's going to sell. Yeah, they, uh, the Elbridge-Colby argument, which I think to me is a really interesting one, because I always saw him as sort of this hard-nosed realist. Um, his argument is that we should be so committed to the defense of Taiwan that China sees it as an obvious failure if they try to do anything there. And I that is a tempting way to think. Um, but one of the things that I'm feeling humbled about after the Russia, Russian invasion of Ukraine is that I didn't expect Vladimir Putin to do what he did. And when you're talking about geopolitics, you're talking about different actors and you don't always know exactly what they're willing to do or how much these things matter to them. And the thing that I didn't quite understand is either, you know, it's hard to say with Putin, but is he kind of losing it or is just Ukraine 
that important to Russians and to Putin himself? I'm not sure, but it turned out to be more important to him than I realized. I don't have a good scope on the Chinese either. So I think that's the thing that we really need to be very careful about. If we're committing to the defense of Taiwan with the idea that we would deter China, um, we should know for sure how much it matters to them. Yeah, we should also realize this isn't going to be like, you know, band of brothers and, you know, people landing on the beaches of Taiwan as if it was D-Day. I mean, the, the Chinese, as they're right now, they're not simulating a land invasion. They're simulating a blockade. So imagine a scenario where the Chinese blockade Taiwan. Are we going to send the Sixth Fleet along with, you know, Canadian naval support to uh, trans transgress, transact the Straits of Taiwan as a Chinese blockade goes on, you know, within a hundred miles of, you know, literally, as I understand it, thousands of Chinese ballistic missiles. <laughs> Even Colby says it's not worth dying for. It's not worth, you know, American and Canadian people dying for. But the if you're bluffing, you have to be ready for someone to call your bluff. And I think the Colby yeah. strategy is a big bluff. And a lot of this is bluffing that we need to be super yeah. careful about. That's a good point. Sean, do you want to last kick in the can? I've monopolized this section, I know, but I'm <laughs> a bit excised uh, this week about this. I just think we're we're dangerously veering into kind of doctrinal hubris uh, at a moment <laughs> when all eyes should be on Ukraine and Russia and a pretty urgent fight over the liberal international order that's going on right there as opposed to picking another one. Well, as we wrap up, let me try to tie together our two conversations today and and lead into uh, next week's hub content. One of the things, Rudyard and Stewart, that held uh, conservative politics together in the Anglosphere through much of this, the second half of the 20th century was a common enemy in the Soviet Union and, and communism. And one of the reasons we've seen uh, uh, fracturing and, 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 and conflict within conservative politics, broadly speaking, has been the absence of that uh, you know, common opponent ideologically and, and strategically. And one wonders if China um, maybe helps to uh, coalesce conservatives around, uh, you know, commitments to free markets, commitments to uh, space for religious expression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, that that is something that uh, was reflected in the Conservative Party's platform in 2021, or kind of robust uh, uh agenda with respect to China. And one wonders if that will continue to be a key part of the kind of conservative orthodoxy as a kind of glue to hold together these different um, parts of, of the movement. Stay tuned for next week's content. As, as, as Rudyard says, these, these and other issues will be covered as we try to understand what's going on within the world of, of big C and small C conservatism in Canada. Awesome, guys. Have a great uh, weekend. We'll do this all again next Friday for uh, Hub subscribers uh, and tune into our web and podcast editions uh, teeing up for you uh, all next week. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, 
If you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.